Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about historical movies and television, anything that claims to be based on a true story, and we check how bad did they mess it up? What was life actually like during that time period? Well, that's why we're here, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. And my name is Michael Tynan, and I've spent the last 20 minutes trying to learn how to pronounce Vietnamese names on YouTube. <laughs> I failed. <laughs> and my name is Mark, and as per usual, I am highly caffeinated. Excellent stuff. And this week, we're starting a two-part series, all of these multi-part series, very exciting, on the uh, film Apocalypse Now. Uh, and I think it's one that Maybe not as much as Braveheart, but it's uh, like if you're talking historical films, I mean, obviously also especially war films or whatever, like this is this is a big film. And we decided to do it in two episodes to try to do some sort of justice to being able to talk about both Vietnamese history kind of up to the point giving the context as well as all the fuckery in the US and <laughs> how that yeah all the madness basically involved in it and as always I know very little about it so I'm going to learn loads about it now over the course of the next two episodes but uh this episode we're talking as I said mostly about Vietnamese history kind of up to the start of the war right mm -hmm. to give you that context um and but let's yeah obviously let's talk about the film first cuz it's a big one it's a big one to talk about right yeah i think i think this is probably when it comes to war movies this is like this might be the war movie you know it just in terms of like look i mean obviously that's an opinion or whatever and people have varying opinions but this is one that is a classic in terms of like its fame and in terms of its infamy as well lots of stories about how it was made how it was made and like all the difficulties and stuff but also it's a movie that like lives long in a memory for anyone who's seen it you know for its cinematography and yeah. its soundtrack yes say, yeah, yeah yeah you know but it's it, like it's a movie when you think about it this movie came out in what like in the 79 1979 yeah so we're what 43 years ago and yet like <laughs> a lot of a lot of memes you'll see online in, in you know like gifs and stuff it's, it's still there's scenes from this movie are still used like you know so i mean it's it's one of those like uh cultural cornerstones i think i love the smell of napalm in the morning exactly. it's it's honestly it's one of those lines that if you grow up just hearing referenced so mm. much that even if you hadn't seen it which i will admit as usual i the film buff i'm catching up on a lot of the classics <laughs> here on this show so i have watched it very very recently for the first time for yeah. this podcast but like you there's so much happening in this that you realize you've seen parodied or referenced oh, a yeah. million times and it's part of our whole cultural consciousness yeah i think of. i think anyone like who's who's sort of like into film and anyone who's between like you know people who are like plugged into like into pop culture will like who who are in our generation or the generations that are after us they'll probably know it from parody before they've seen it yeah you know because it, it'll be so familiar to them even as an adolescent before they're you know before they before they watch the movie you know as well i i think like this film does have, there is some legitimate criticisms and we can go into them as we always do listeners. Um, but in general, I feel like as a piece of cinema, it is a masterpiece. Definitely. And um, Definitely. I think if you look at Rotten Tomatoes as well, 98%. So yeah, for me, for me, this is probably in terms of the, in terms of the quality of the film, it's probably the best movie we've covered. That's, yeah. That might be controversial you go, but that, that, for me, that'll be true. Yeah. We but, love controversy. And if you don't agree, yeah. me feel free to tweet and I will ignore you. So. <laughs> it sounds like uh, finale talk, as, as we were saying before. And maybe we'll yeah. talk about what are our favorite films for the past, these three seasons we've done so far. Well, we do have finale. to do the Mail Awards as well. Don't we? Right. Oh, we so. will, of course, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, 
so as as you said, a potential masterpiece. It's by Francis Ford Coppola. Like we haven't done the Godfather on this show. I've discussed the Godfather on Cut to Black, mm-hmm. um, which is on showswithyouknow.com. You can find some chats about it there. But we get into it there. Very prolific director, obviously. But Michael, do you have a few more details on on the making and who who were involved beyond? Yeah, so obviously, um, in terms of, you've already gone into the director, but it was actually written by Coppola as well, but also John Milius, who is our friend from the HBO Rome series, actually. So, you know. A whole pile of ours. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. So, like, he he, he definitely brought his expertise uh, to this, you know. Uh, But, yeah, a critical and a financial success, which... When you learn about this sheer madness that went into recording this film, you're like, this could have been a massive flop. You know, it was recorded in the Philippines. It famously like took two, there was 238 days of filming, you know, it cost. Which is not the (laughs) amount of days they planned on doing, I believe, right? Ran over by a bit. (laughs) Absolutely. There's over 200 hours of footage. Like he he famously used like 2 million feet of film for this, like. It's ridiculous. Like it's an absolutely ridiculous film. Which is why there's about eight different versions of it. For yeah. You to watch various recuts and reduxes. And it, and it took a team of like ten editors, like over a year, to actually edit that. I think it might even have been two years to like actually get it into the cinematic uh, format that was eventually released. In. Like, yeah. Just, it's insane. Like. And I, I did. Uh, so I started watching one of the newer cuts, but I was, I went back and got the theatrical cut because mm-hmm. I was like, I. That's usually how I want to consume something, just yeah. to understand its place in culture. I don't want to watch a version that's been re-edited because I'm trying to go back it to understand how it sits with all the other yeah, films absolutely. coming out at the time. Yeah. You know, because the, the version that is often watches the Redux, right? I think yeah, that's what it's yeah, called. Yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose the, f- the film itself is based on a very, very good book uh, called The Heart of Darkness, uh, which I'd highly recommend by Joseph Conrad. Um, it, although it's very loosely based on it, as, as Jacob would always say. And so, for example, there's like several How plot much do they elements. sacrifice to get a good story? <laughs> yeah, like it's said, it, 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 it is set on a boat, but it's set in the 19th century, this book. It is during a dark period of colonialism. So mm-hmm. there is a lot of similarities. Um, but it's set in the Congo in the 19th century. But it does have, you know, Mr. Kurtz. Yeah. In it as well so yeah. there is some similar they carried over some things from the book almost directly yeah but in other ways obviously in terms of context historical period all that it's it's incredibly different you know uh, just some trivia on the film i suppose um there's a little cameo of harrison ford in the beginning of the big, i don't know if anyone knows yeah, yeah. yeah. It's up on it yeah and his name is colonel george Pardon. lucas yeah. Uh, is it? Yes. I did miss that. <laughs> or G. Lucas. I don't know if they went for George, but yeah. yeah um, I, I like that. That's good. And that was literally just because uh, Capallo and Lucas were mates, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of Mar- Mar- Mando- Marlon Brando is in this film famously. He plays uh, Colonel Walter Kurtz. And I suppose the thing with him is he got three and a half million dollars for 15 minutes work. In 1977. Yeah. Holy right shit. When they were yeah. making it. Because yeah. obviously when you're watching it for the first time, like he's the big name on there and you're oh, just yeah. kind of watching your clock yeah. and watching the fucking long ass runtime of the film and you're like, where yeah. is Where this is fella? Marlon Brando? And the like? book is the same because you're actually, if in, from during the whole book, you're waiting to meet Kurtz. You yeah. know? And it's oh, not yeah. till oh, the last oh, like few pages. So, you know, they, they know how to build suspense uh, around this oh. character. Do you mind if I interrupt 
your rundown of facts because I forgot to give my one sentence summary, <gasps> which is relevant to what we're saying now. Go so, for it, Jacob. One sentence summary. A military specialist is sent on a mission to take out a rogue colonel who has made himself a self-styled god. Uh, but as he follows him into the jungle, will he also follow into madness? Ooh, like that. Lovely. I like that. Lovely. Lovely. So, yeah. Didn't mean to interrupt, but to give the context of, as you're saying, we spend a lot of the film on this trail, kind of, and it's feels a bit like, uh, you know, uh, like the Odyssey, where he's mm. bumping into different situations that are all related to the war, all terrible, basically, and losing parts of himself along the way, though he's already fucked up from the beginning, our main character, obviously. <laughs> and it's just shining a light on all the different parts of the war until we finally get to Kurtz. At the very end, exactly, yeah. Um, in terms of the, the, the cast, I suppose, we already mentioned Marilyn Brando. We've also got Martin Sheen, who uh, plays Captain Benjamin Willard, so yeah. a US, um, I suppose he would be a veteran assassin. Yeah, he's, really. a veteran. Yeah. he's the main character. Like, yeah. Yeah. He's the military yeah. specialist I mentioned. <laughs> um, and he's, got, br- he's brilliant as well. He's very he's good. so good. No? And we've got some uh, cameos from uh, Dennis Hopper as well, oh, who, right, who yeah. plays a photojournalist in it. And as well as that, Robert Duval, who deserves a mention because he plays an unforgettable character. It's a lieutenant colonial, or is it CO? I don't know the, the exact term to call him, but it's Bill uh, Kilgarai, is it? Yeah. yeah. Kilgory, Kilgarai. He, he, he delivers the famous, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. And like Charlie it. Don't Surf yeah. as well. He's <laughs> oh. the he's the basically obsessed with surfing, yeah. Which we can go into if you want. He, he's interesting <laughs> because he sort of he sort of looks like a, or he sounds like he has like the hat of like, you know, uh, like a Confederate sol- soldier from the American Civil War. Like that's just been sort of transported into into like what was then modern, modern it, well it was a ca- like, I think he even um, it's a cavalry unit yeah, but yeah, it's yeah, an he's air mo- yeah, obviously yeah, cavalry, replacing yeah. helicopters yeah. which yeah. you know it's great. cavalry um, uh, but I suppose yeah and just in terms of trivia because it has to be kind of mentioned and it's like Martin Sheen had a heart attack on set yeah you know yeah. so obviously that delayed which they covered up like they, they, yeah. they made a they, they kept this out of the papers somehow and Martin Sheen was was, was you know I mean I know everyone knows him now, probably principally from the West Wing, being you know as President Bartlett, like. But I mean, he was like a star, an up and coming powerhouse actor. He delivers a career performance in this, in my opinion, anyway. Delivers mm. a career performance um, in it, but he he was a man who who at the time was really struggling with with you know with substance abuse and and, and things like that. And uh, the fact that he had a heart attack during the making of the movie, they had to rush him off the hospital. Obviously, they had to suspend the filming of the film. Um, they kept all of this out of the papers. I don't know to what extent the studio knew about this, but if you were a studio executive, can you imagine all of this money is going into this movie and every disaster that could hit the production of a movie hits this movie. Mm. Not just that, but the star. Well, you can <laughs> see as, that, you know. as well, there is this famous scene, it's at the opening of the movie, um, when you find him in this kind of, you know... <laughs> dark kind of uh humid hotel room with yeah. a fan just going overhead which is obviously like supposed to indicate maybe the helicopters that yeah. are or whatever but he there's a scene in it where he cuts his hand um and he smashes it into a mirror and yeah. that actually happened he did that on purpose that's not a stunt and he was going through obviously some difficult times mm. at the time i think uh so like his mental state fitted the character 
that he portrays in the film quite well, you know, because it's obviously someone dealing with like a lot of stress, mental health issues, all that type of thing caused by war and violence and all that kind of thing, which is a big theme of the film anyway. And, and like not, not to just even stay with him, but the stress of making this film for Francis Ford Coppola was such that he, he, he was having like suicidal ideation during this like and he suggested more than once that he that he was going to kill himself because the stress had just had just broken him because at one point in the in the making of this film there was a like a typhoon hit where they were filming and i just wiped out all the sets but also <laughs> took out all of their equipment yeah Jesus. And like this is a difficult movie to film from the from the beginning the other thing is they had helicopters on loan from the local military but sometimes the military would come and be like, sorry, we actually need those back because we have yeah. to go and engage <laughs> local guerrillas. So, you know, you're trying to film this like really, really famous, you know, the ride of the Valkyrie scene with a helicopter, but like they had to put that off because they didn't have the helicopters and they didn't know when they were going to get them back. And meanwhile, the studio are breathing down the guy's neck. He's putting his own money into the movie because they're blown through the budget so badly. Yeah. It's crazy. And of course, there's also uh, Hearts of Darkness, the not the book, but the documentary. If yeah, we want to get more, into, yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say? Yeah, I was basically going to say, if anyone's interested, there's a whole documentary mm. because it was so legendary. You know? Yeah, honestly, this film feels like like we say this a lot with films we like. We could talk about it for an hour. I almost think this is if we do have a Patreon, maybe this is a footnote of we watch Hearts of Darkness, just chat about oh, the yeah. film and like the experience of making it, things like that. Um, and honestly, we could spend the whole time talking about it. But are there any more just film related stuff you want to get out of the way? Trivia, etc. Quotes uh, before we throw ourselves into the oh. world of Vietnamese history. The horror. Uh, well, yeah. for me, I just I've gone back to the soundtrack because. It is a major part of the film, you know what I mean? Um, And I suppose it came about because, in a lot of ways, it's because the director was went to film school with Jim Morrison. So because of that, Jim Morrison was like, oh, yeah, okay, you can can use my music in your film. And uh, and I don't think you could pick a better song than the end to open the film and to close the film, actually. And you see the, you know, the the sort of helicopters coming on on, on screen all of a sudden, you know, you have this napalm strike that just eliminates a massive part of the jungle and this song chillingly playing in the background. So I think, like, the choice of music is amazing. Um, later on, then you have, you know, when they're in a more happy mood, when they're, uh, when they're water skiing down the river on the boat, you've got I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the <laughs> Rolling Stones. And uh, of, during a major helicopter attack, you've got Fla- uh, Flight of the Valkyrie by Wagner as well. Of course. Wagner. So you've got these like, totemic songs, really, you know, um, that are... I think I think make the film in a lot of ways. If the, if it wasn't for the soundtrack, I don't I don't think it, the film would have done or be so memorable. To well, me. So much so about the film. Yeah. So much about the film is about the mood, like yes. which is often not the case, right? Like if you know a lot of films, it's like here's the plot. Like the plot is what's important, but here you're building the atmosphere, and yeah, there's plot happening, etc. But like getting you in the mindset, like the kind of tearing a part of your mind that is happening mm. here like that is it really gives Francis Ford Coppola and everyone involved a chance to show the true artistry and what I always talk about like what is unique about a film like how can you do this differently in a film than you would in a book or whatever mm. and they they nail it right like this is why yeah. it's considered one of the best films of all time and that's why we got two episodes on it <laughs> yeah exactly I think it deserves our first double episode definitely yeah 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 well let's let's get into it let's let me ask and I, I think it's a very broad question right where it, the, the difficulty is 
not zooming out too much or getting in lost in detail, but I think we want to start with like a brief description of Vietnam, right? Like up until the arrival of the French, which we'll we'll also get into, but like the origins of the culture or whatever. Which is, a, I know I did this on the the Japanese history one. We went back pretty far. We're gonna try maybe, maybe, maybe not, not forty thousand years. Yeah, yeah, maybe. yeah. I don't know. I'll hand it over to you, Michael. Where yeah, do we want to start? I basically was like, it's with a lot of these podcasts. You're like, where do I? Where's the cut off? You know. Mm. Um. So you know, we could all go back to farm. First farmers and you know rice agriculture and all that type of thing, uh, but I think just because we have so much to get through in this episode, uh, that I think we'll start more or less with the first recorded mention of the Viet people, which um, is in the third century BC, and it's the area. If you look at Vietnam now, it's like an S shape, basically, mm-hmm. um, it's facing out onto the South China Sea, and. But the original Viet population, the people who became known as Viet, which basically we're not sure where it comes from, but it could literally just mean being the Chinese word because the Chinese empire was, you know, its big neighbor at the time. It it, it was basically their word for the beyond, Mm. you know, or the people beyond. Oh, well. You know what I mean? So we're not sure of the original, you know, meaning of all these things. You can kind of guess or whatever. But um, the, the, the kind of... I suppose, uh, what well, probably this describe it as the sort of the cradle of the Vietnamese civilization is what we would consider North Vietnam today. So it's the Red River Delta. It's um, up near Hanoi, essentially. It's okay. an incredibly agriculturally rich area, um, facing out onto the sea, obviously. Um, and I suppose. Vietnam, its story, it's a lot like, a, it's, it's kind of like a lot of small countries beside big neighbors, you know, it's it's similar sort of, they went through out history, many, many invasions, which made them into extremely tough people to beat, as yeah. well as well. They're like famously, will win fights. Will win, yeah. We're massively outnumbered and not look like they can win. They somehow will win. And you, you mentioned the third century there, BC. Was that you said the first recorded mention? But would there? Do we know? Would there have been people there for longer? And this? Oh is yeah, kinda, way yeah. further. We can go far back. We've got different. You know, obviously we can have we've pottery, we have bronze. Yeah, we that's have it. That's yeah, okay, leave that. That's dangerous. Dangerous. As far stuff. as you yeah, want to go. Uh, that's a Patreon episode. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but I suppose it, where it's it's sort of sandwiched. Um, between India and China. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting part of the world to be like with those two massive, massive global cultures on either side of you. Like. I, exactly. And I suppose because of its location, it's such a strategic place because it's a gateway to China, but it's also a gateway then to the Philippines, Indonesia, the wider Pacific, obviously India. It's very, very well placed where it is. So obviously a lot of people wanted to take it over for many, many years, you yeah. know. Uh, for example, the the Chinese would have just referred to that part of the world as, you know, the Southern Seas, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the Indians would have been the Golden Peninsula. And then Europeans, um, you know... With their charming way of just p- picking a, the most facile uh, definition of an area, decided to call that general area, which includes La- uh, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, they decided just to call it Indochina or Indochine in French. You know? So lazy, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah. lazy. <laughs> so we, we will be referring to Indochina a lot in this, but that's just because that's the historic, what it was historically named by the Europeans, and also because it takes in 
you know, the ex, the other countries that border modern day in Vietnam as well, you know? Mm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's sort of, it, it, it developed as its own unique culture, obviously in the Red River Delta. Um, modern day uh, Vietnam is also kind of dominated in the South by another large river Delta, the Mekong Delta. So you're basically talking about uh, a, an, an area that had very great access by river into Asia and the, and China essentially. So, mm. you know, from every, it was always going to be a sought off place, a sought after place, you know? Um, so, to fast forward a little bit, okay, um, up until 111 BC. So to put that in European context, this is when the Gracchi brothers in Rome, you know, were causing their reforms and not too far, not too, around the same time that Sulla was getting going. And so br- the, the birth of socialism. Exactly. As we understand so, it now, yeah. Yeah, so it was at this time, basically, that the Han dynasty, so the China which had existed as the massive neighbor uh, to uh, Vietnam's immediate north, decided, oh, we're taking over, basically. You know, <laughs> yeah. there's, no, there's no two ways about That's it. That's ours. You know? Give us that. Exactly. And though they basically um, conquered and annexed north and, what, north and central Vietnam. Um, and for they didn't like, uh, you know, in Ireland, we often say 800 years of British rule and all this type of thing. The Chinese were there for a millennium. <laughs> and it's how so they've got they've got a speed they have and even after the vietnamese eventually are rid of the chinese you know the chinese were always trying to invade again <laughs> you know but given this thousand year period started by the han dynasty in 11 bc uh, 111 bc uh like the china left a massive mark on vietnam much as it did on a lot of you know, countries uh, course, yeah. in Asia, you know. So you get a big influence, Confucianism, uh, Buddhism, the bureaucratic state that developed the idea of one emperor under heaven, you know, all of this type of thing, forbidden cities, all this, this all mm. comes, uh, a lot of this is influenced by China. And essentially China incorporated Vietnam and turned it into a province. Was this, this was all of pre- present day Vietnam was sort of engulfed? No, or the so northern it, would, parts? it would have just been yeah. the, what we call the northern, yeah, what, yeah, northern sorry. Vietnam today. Um, yeah, so basically, and you know, it, the, the Vietnamese rebelled for, for years, they, they did this, but there was also a kind of a, a Sino-Vietnamese um, ruling class, you know, right, and right. like a lot of colonized countries, it can only real colonization can only really be maintained when there's a large section of the local population which is willing to work yeah, with the. With you, see the that, you see that everywhere. You, that that's super common with European uh, colonial powers as well. It's really how we did it too. Exactly, and um, I suppose they they also adopted, much like Korea or Japan, I remember you talked about this, they adopted the Chinese writing script as well. So because of that, they would have been, this opened up them their whole world to a lot of kind of Chinese ideas, you know. Mm. Um, So yeah, And of course course the trade that would have been coming in and out of the empire as well would would flow naturally to there as well. So they they would have contacts with other parts of the world. Exactly. Now, uh, just before we get into these names, because like I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, I'm going to butcher these names. Uh, I'm not Vietnamese, uh, you know, in case you didn't know, guys. You're from uh, Laos, though, weren't you saying on your passport? (laughs) I I just thought that was a great story about that. Yeah, no, it is true. Um, I'm from an area of Ireland called Leash, and um, when people 
in when I, I used to live in Sp- France. Spell it for the people. It's L A O I S, which is very close to L A O S uh, and Laos and or Lao, depending on how you try to pronounce it. So when I used to be given my passport over when I lived abroad for a few years, I'd be given over my passport to various people for you know administrative <laughs> things, and they'd all be looking at me because it would say place of birth on my passport, <laughs> and it'd be leash, but they were always saying Lao, really, and I'd be like, no, 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 just, just. I'll, I'll explain it another time. Uh, I'm part of the <laughs> colonial ruling class. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I apologize to all Vietnamese people uh, everywhere, basically for the yeah. pronunciations that are coming here. And if I mess up any of your history. Um, yeah, but, you can't mess it up any worse than the Americans anyway, so. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, burn, Jacob. We'll get there, Jacob. Yeah. That's yeah. the next episode. Yeah. Um, but basically, yeah, so for a lot of, the, a lot of uh, Vietnamese history, it was a frontier province of China, which was called Zhaozi in Chinese, okay? Mm-hmm. And the Chinese referred to, um, you know, they referred to the, the Vietnamese as the Annam people, whereas the Vietnamese themselves, over many years, they, they wouldn't have always used the, Vietnam, the term Vietnam. That was a really, relatively modern construct. Um, a lot, for a lot of their history... They were known as a variation of Dai Nam or um, Dai Viet, which basically either means like the Greater South or Greater Viet. So, okay. you know, they kind of had their own, you know, they had their, their, their obviously, um, despite this colonialism, you know, they, they maintained their own culture. Also, before we get into much detail, there's not just Vietnamese people in Vietnam. You've got like 50 ethnic groups. So like, right. bear that in mind when we say Vietnam. It is a function around. again of where it is. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, like yeah. it's a real melting pot yeah. kind of location, right? Like there's a lot of things flowing through there. And it's, people. O- it's only natural that you'd have all sorts of, you know, ethnic groups that would be there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I suppose uh, going off before I go off on a tangent, um, this eventually, in the 10th century, so around the times the Vikings were invading uh, Ireland. So, so basically, <laughs> you're, like like you said, a thousand years is what we just summarised there. Yes. Which, you know, yeah, so from right before the birth of, the supposed birth of Christ, we haven't done a real history episode on that yet, but right before then, up until, like, Viking invasions basically is Chinese rule, and then that gets cut off. Yeah, so this is when, basically, there's some problems in China, and when there's some problems in China... You know, the Vietnamese decided to take advantage of it, you know. So the Chinese Tang Dynasty, uh, it collapsed in around the 10th century. At the beginning, it just gave autonomy to the local Vietnamese. Uh, but over time, the Vietnamese managed to actually gain their full independence, you know. Um, and this was under... Was that through, uh, like armed conflict or how did they get they, they, yeah yeah there was a, a there was a general um uh, who basically eventually won a battle against the chinese yeah. and he started what was called the lai dynasty essentially and he in a lot of ways he was the, he was kind of the first vietnamese en- emperor of that era yeah um but he copied a lot of the the chinese stuff so he would have considered himself you know uh, the son of heaven too mm. he would have copied it one emperor under it God, would have been a confucian crack, yeah. system right. you know examination system there was a lot of things brought over you know um but you know the chinese had a lot of good ideas so, well, so, so people would take so he sort of would he sort of be like 
he's sort of like a founding father type figure to them. Like, in some in, ways, in yeah, I'm of, sure there's lots of people would dispute it because obviously we skipped a lot. So. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd say there's a few more founding <laughs> fathers along the way, you know. Well, I, I liked the beautifully uh, simplistic. In China, there were some problems. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say there's more to unpack there if we if we get into some Chinese. That's phones. a that's a I'm a that's a phrase I'm going to adopt to help me with brevity when it comes to these. Situations. There were some problems. <laughs> exactly, and like over the centuries, so. It was ruled by different dynasties. Um, they repelled lots of invaders, and famously the Mongols. So the Mongols kicked the shit out of everybody, you know, yeah. including the Chinese. Yep. Uh, but the Vietnamese, uh, uh, with their allies, their southern allies as well, uh, the Champa people and that, they managed to actually expel the Mongols. There was a great battle in 1288, uh, the Battle of Bang, uh, Bakdang, where they managed to kind of expel the Mongols so that they couldn't you know, um, do what they did everywhere else, which and was like 12, 1288, just in the, in the Mongol context, that's not like a period when the Mongols are weak. Like no. that's not, you know what I mean? They're, this is like during the flush of their, of their aggressive strength at that point. Yeah. And they still get thrown out. Yeah. It's pretty good. So, pretty, the, pretty you know, there, there, there is some, and this is a common theme when throughout Vietnamese history, they're always, they always seem to be the underdogs. And as we'll see, they always, uh, seem to eventually come out on top anyway, you know? Um, so skipping forward a little bit, the Chinese did actually reinvade. So a couple of hundred years later, fourteen twenty-seven, um, they or, or the Vietnamese or the Chinese had invaded, and over twenty years, the Ming Chinese had basically reconquered Vietnam, and it was a brutal occupation. Mm. Like some of the stuff that was done is like truly shocking, you know, in terms of you know, massacres and what, everything you would expect in that period of time, you know. Yeah, setting the theme for our episodes here. <laughs> exactly. But uh, by 1427, the Vietnamese under La Loi um, managed to actually throw out the Ming dynasty. And for the next few years then, Vietnamese, Viet, the Vietnamese, believe it or not, went on their own colonial speed. Well, they spree. had a go as well, they? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, like, so that was one of the things, I suppose I didn't know a lot about Vietnamese history before I looked into this. Um, but yeah, like, from the time they expelled the Chinese, um, you know, in the, in the f- uh, 15th century, and, uh, they, they basically left their kind of homeland which was sort of not what we would call northern vietnam today and over the course of the following centuries they moved south and they also moved into cambodia into laos and they aggressively took over the lands and you know they uh, and we were every bit as brutal as the ming chinese had been to them they were to these to these peoples that they took over you know um so to the south which would be where modern day saigon is and the mekong delta and all that um like they they brutally oppressed the Champa people there, um, and you know, in terms of the Khmer as well in in Cambodia. I know we're throwing a lot of terms out here at people, but like they managed, they you know, they, they in terms of their language, they forced the language on them. They, wow. they were they were a militaristic society, and you know, they were you, the the leadership anyway was hungry for power. You know, so over these centuries, Vietnam came to look more what we associate vietnam to look like today you know? yeah, because of that expansion and yes everything. although there was always a kind of an a, a, officially there was an emperor a lot of the time as we've seen a lot of these societies it there's several um dynasties within it and they're all vying for power so 
Uh, Vietnam was mainly divided into three dynasties um, by this later medieval period, you know. Um, there was officially one overlord, but, you know, they it, there was a large degree of autonomy in the south, the middle, and the north, you know. Um, who And they were continuing to expel Chinese invasions, incursions, all this type of thing as well. So we're skipping a lot of, uh, skipping forward a lot now, uh, just because of our timeline, but basically until 1802. Okay, so we've skipped right. about 300 years there. So uh, how, look so it up, everyone. How long was this period of expansion or whatever where they were uh, building what we know now know as modern Vietnam? So I suppose over, over the course of about 250 years mm. is when that kind of took place. Um, and, you know, they assimilated these peoples in as best they could, you know, until you had... Um, you know, the, what we would consider the S-shape of Vietnam to, the, to this yeah. day, essentially, you know. Um, and then as in 1802, there was a, after many years of civil war, because there had been great civil wars, rebellions, uh, a lot of it reminded me of um, Japanese history when you were speaking of that as well, Jacob. Mm. Um, eventually, and I'm going to try and pronounce this now, this is a tough one, listeners, so bear with me here. Um, <laughs> but a new, uh, uh, the, okay, Nguyen, you know Nguyen. So this, this is the Pretty name. That, this is the name that you see really commonly uh, as a, like a real common Vietnamese. It's the name. most common for, uh, surname in Vietnam. It's yeah. N G U Y E N. Is how yeah, in, in, and this in is script, right? I, I've heard it like. I've heard it pronounced win quite a lot, but, it, but yours... Apparently that's, that's wrong, because okay, that's yeah, why yeah. I was looking on YouTube trying to pronounce this word. I think it's Nguyen or okay. something like that. But like... You're gonna. Ha- I'm gonna have to pause every time I need to pronounce it. So uh, bear we're, that in we mind. Are, we are. We are trying. <laughs> we are trying. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry. What was what was the thing about that name? <laughs> so basically, this di- dynasty uh, came to power by 1802, and the reason we've skipped forward to 1802 is this is when our old friends, the Europeans, start coming. Ah, uh, here we come with our smallpox and gunpowder. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So. Um, at this time, around 1802, there was an emperor called Xie Long, and he kind of ran a military royalist regime. Um, he set up a kind of a unitary state, and he began to sort of modernize Vietnam. So, like, he, in fairness to him, he set up the, the postal service, um, built roads, canals, navy, you know, because he could see, and his successors could see as well, um, that the British, you know, were in India, they were just taken Singapore in 1819, and the Dutch were in Indonesia, and he could see that the Europeans were, you know, they, it, they, it was difficult to think that Vietnam would be left unmolested for, for long, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so this sort of paranoia was very well justified, and I suppose we, to talk about that, we have to talk about the French conquest, you know? Yeah. Here come the French. Yeah, I mean, if like if you're if you're a you know even not a militaristic leader, if you're any kind of leader in that part of the world, and you just see just Europeans are just coming out of the woodwork, they're all over there at that point. Like the Portuguese have a bit of India at this point, don't they? I mean, yeah, in Goa, in yeah. Goa, yeah. Like it's like Europeans just they just think they've struck gold, you know. So. China is very weak at this time. Yeah, that's and the other, that's the other it's issue. so bit like it, it was it, like it, around this period you had the Opium Wars where the British famously went to war to force the Chin- the Chinese to buy their addictive opium. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and uh, you, so you 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 also don't have an aggressive um, like a like 
in in the modern terms you you would think in the area like that japan is a big power in that area and you're not going to mess with the japanese but they're not at a at that point in their history uh, now jacob correct me if i'm wrong but no, i don't no. think they're an expansionist kind of aggressive big unified military oh power no no no, 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 1800s, no, no, right? no definitely not uh they're very i think they're still shut off until you know the the west comes a knocking and Basically goes you better fucking them. open yeah. this open shit that up. port motherfucker yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So if you're the leader of Vietnam, you see all this going on, you're thinking they're they're coming from A next. They're coming. And I suppose there had been some interaction with Europeans and European ideas uh in the centuries before. So in the sixteenth and seventeenth century um, as Jacob alluded to in one of our episodes, a lot of uh, missionaries got thrown out of Japan, mm. uh, Catholic missionaries from Europe. And so. where they ended up was Vietnam. Right. Um, so they went wandering around Vietnam um, and they, you know, they actually built up quite a, a large following. They converted a lot by the mid 18th century. There was about 300,000 uh, Catholics in Vietnam. Wow. And there was a population, they reckon, of about seven and a half million. So, yeah. way more successful than they were in Japan. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. uh, absolutely. And, you know, this would become a problem. Now, one benefit, just on an aside, of this, of, of, of um, the missionaries coming in is that they actually created a Romanized version of the Vietnamese language. Benefit which, for Europeans, I assume. E, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, you could argue it benefits modern, uh, sure. modern yeah, yeah. Uh, Vietnam, but this became this this language, which was probably they probably tried to convert the Bible or to to uh, translate the Bible, and this came uh, as a result of it. But because of that, they, they, they new ideas from Europe when this new language, the Romanized form of script, was created for Vietnamese, it meant they could suddenly learn about oh, you know, like ideas like uh you know liberty egality fraternity yeah uh, enlightenment you know. all that stuff Re- so yeah. sorry remind me we're stepping back a bit right because we went to 1800 but now we're talking about before yeah just talk about the building up to the, the, the this sort of european yeah. influence so it's kind of like a seeping influence at first of culture and ideas religious ideas that gives a bit of a foothold of these concepts laying the way for what's to come. Absolutely, absolutely. You can, you can imagine if you're like a Vietnamese and you're learning about all these great European ideas about the Enlightenment and, and you know, liberty and freedom and all this, and then you're like, oh, cool. And then you realize that no Europeans are actually following these things and they're, oh. here, they're here to colonize the place and brutalize all the people. <laughs> and, yeah, that's uh, a theme, all right. <laughs> exactly. So, like, there was, as you said, Jacob, they had a foothold, the Europe, there was a, some, a foothold of European culture, I suppose, in Vietnam. Vietnam. But what really changed everything was Napoleon III mm. of France. Um, so in 1848, he's elected as the president of the uh, Second Republic in France. So, sorry. Um, this is very confusing. Yeah, so, yeah I'm going to so, wreck your head on this I one. I mean, Napoleon... <laughs> so I know a little bit about the Napoleonic Wars, which are over at that point, right? I mean, we're in yes. the mid-1800s. So who is Napoleon III? He's his nephew. Okay. Um, and he's, the, he's the famous Napoleon's nephew. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So he's his Lou, his bro, Napoleon's brother, Louis' son, as far as I'm aware. All right. And he basically was elected as the president of France in 1848. But as Napoleons tend to do, there was a coup d'état <laughs> within a couple of you years. You say president, I say emperor. Yes. They ne- and they didn't see it coming. <laughs> His name's literally Napoleon. But you're the presence. My army says I'm the emperor, so... <laughs> 
um, yeah. So and by so by 1851, just three years after becoming president, he was the emperor of the French. Mm. And this, you, you can know, sort of see why. What republic are they on now? France. This is the fifth republic they're in. They're on the yeah. This for is the, the fifth moment. one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was yeah. the second one. Yes. And one guy's like, nah, we're empire again. We're empire again. So Napoleon III, uh, he had the French uh, second empire. You know, he was looking at his, I suppose he was looking at his um, uncle's record and he was like, shit. It's a big name to live up to. <laughs> yeah. Like, if your name's Napoleon, you better do something pretty special. And he, so he was looking, he was thinking that France had kind of lost a lot of its prestige. It's lost, it lost most of its European empire. It yeah. lost all its possessions in America nearly mm. as well. Um, so he was looking around for something easy to conquer. And as the poor people of the Lebanon and Algeria and later Vietnam mm. and uh, will attest to, you know, he, this is exactly why he did it. It was for glory. Um, you can imagine him like losing the, the provinces they held in what's now Canada, like, you know, all around like Quebec, Montreal and everything and being like, okay, we lost that. It was really cold there. Let's go somewhere that's not cold at all. Yeah. Let's try a different <laughs> Where, time. Where's the hottest place we can find? <laughs> and yeah, I suppose they were like, they were looking for a way like to reestablish the French empire. Like this, incidentally, this is when Paris was started to be built. This is when he, like, so he famously rebuilt Paris into the Paris that people know That now. love now, yeah. Yeah. The, this, the beautiful boulevards and all that. This yeah, is all down to this kind of thing, you know. Stuff, yeah. um, you know cre- also, the creation of the bin, the yeah. Poubelle, very important, yeah. He did also lose the Franco-Prussian War pretty badly. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, anyway. We won't go into that, you know. He built some lovely uh, boulevards. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so... There's another Patreon movie there, <laughs> Jacob. <laughs> the boulevards of France... <laughs> Uh, exactly um but yeah so obviously he went they went off they they conquered lots of countries all over the world at this time the french empire uh but they were looking for at this time the industrial revolution was happening so they were looking for you know they were looking for good they were looking for primary materials you Mm. know rubber um all these type of things that they couldn't get in france you know to to fund or to fuel industrialization but they were also looking like a lot of colonies it's a captive market if you control this country you can just take all their raw materials and sell them back all the stuff that you your your own people have right. have made. So, so whatever think, that think is. of the British Empire telling the American colonies, you must buy our tea, or the British selling linen to the Indians. Yeah, you yeah. know, for example. So you know. what was the thing in Vietnam or the products? So just or? sort of different different products. So they would have you know it would be they would have exported rice for example they would have uh you know taken uh, rubber they would have looked for all the type of things like even bananas all this type of thing cash crops i suppose is to be yeah. mm. the best way of putting it and then in turn the french would sell them back you know household goods this type of stuff as well you know uh so anyway that was in a bit of an aside but the reason we mentioned catholicism is essentially that was napoleon's excuse Okay, right. so it's a, cla- it's a classic of European expansion. Isn't it? I'm just trying to civilize these non-Christian barbarians with my guns and my smallpox <laughs> and my flu. What do you mean they're all dead? <laughs> Five of them are left, and they're all Catholics. It's fine. Um, so I, I suppose at this time, around in the 1840s, the 1850s, there was there was persecution of Catholics in Vietnam. You know, so. there was. Um, uh, but that didn't mean that the French needed to invade. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the French did 
see this as a great excuse. So in 1858, they're basically there in, in order to defend these Catholics and the missionaries who are being killed and stuff like that. They sent in um, the gunships, you know, gunship yeah. diplomacy. Um, they bombed the port of Da Nang and uh, they basically in the south. And they s- over time, they s- established a colony in the south, which would be around the area of modern day Saigon in the south, Ho Chi Minh right. City, um, which they called Koka. Koshin uh, Chin Ashin, I think something like that. It's very difficult to pronounce. Um, this is a, this is like Vietnamese through French into English. Is what you're trying to pronounce there, basically. Yes. Yeah. So it's a bit bit difficult. Yeah, difficult. Yeah. <laughs> As you can tell, we're not really good at pronunciation in general on this podcast. Uh, but anyway, to labour the unless point. it's Swedish, and then yeah. one of us is an expert. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Mikael. <laughs> <laughs> um. And over, I suppose, so this was obviously in the 1850s, they established a foothold, established a colony. They they conquered Vietnam relatively easy. Like, they just sent in a ton of soldiers. Uh, They used old-fashioned repression, you know, um, to expand, basically, to take in all of Vietnam. They made Hanoi in the north, the capital, eventually. And by 1893, so within about 30 years of them having a presence in Vietnam, they'd also taken over Laos uh, and Cambodia. And they, this is where they established the colony or the protectorate mm. of Indochine or Indochina, you know? And when they're, when they're doing this, when the French are expanding through Vietnam, um, like you were saying, they're doing a lot of this through coercion and, and Vietnam is not as unified, it's not unified or it is unified or it's, it is unified, it is. yeah. It's unified at this stage under an emperor, but like it's no match for French sure, technology. Okay. So the fear, sinus. the fear that the emperors had before, are just they're completely being realized and now. Yeah. What happened to the emperors? Oh, puppets! Pup kept on oh, as right, a puppet. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah that was my, that was my next question. Yeah. Did they keep the emperor? Yeah. Keep they keep him on as a puppet so that they can kind of keep the illusion that they're there to protect it. Uh, what's funny is. Is that they initially took it over when Fran- France, this Fran- second French empire. Mm-hmm. But by the time they consolidated everything and created Indochine, Indochine, it was like 30 years later. And by this time, the it was a f- the French Third Republic. Yeah, yeah, the empire was finished at this point, yeah. Yeah, and it like if you're a Republican, it kind of sits with you. If you're going on about liberty, egalité, fraternity, like you can't really sit very comfortably that you're subjugating people all over the I world. I want free speech and democracy in the colonies yeah <laughs> yeah it's not denying correct. them their rights yeah, it's, um it's, you know it's never stopped us before to be honest <laughs> but Fair, yeah did that have any consequences the the change of uh, into a republic on uh, in france well i suppose they tried to sugarcoat it instead yeah. of calling it like i suppose under the empire they would have just been like it's just a, te- a, te- a territory province a province of whatever yeah, protectorate yeah. whereas they yeah. said instead it's a protectorate and there's mm. a great quote actually in the in the french assembly nationale uh, they were you know they were actually you know discussing creation creating this protectorate and a famous famous french politician jules de la fosse he stood up and he was like look let us call these things by their name yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a protectorate but a possession you want and i suppose that's the truth it was a, a place for raw materials and then as a captive market and and he, trying to call it anything else is kind of a lie yeah it's just opinion. disrespectful as yeah. well i mean yeah. it's just it's just yeah um I, I was trying to think where does french colonial rule like stand 
<laughs> when it comes to horrible colonial empires, and I, on the like, where is it on the rating board? As, board? In, as in, like a top five worst. Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm open. I'm open to correction because, like, like this is very difficult to say. But I think it, it was in no way as extreme as, say, the Belgian Congo, where they were. You know, oh, that, that's that's truly in, horrific in terms of oppression. But nor way. was it like the Raj in, in, in Italy, or sorry, in India, which was obviously, you know, brutal in mm. some est- extents, but not compared to the Congo, for example. Mm. So I think it's somewhere in the middle between the two. And from everything I've read, that's also, you know, kind of where it was. There was tons of oppression, but it wasn't as, you know, it like the modern day slavery wasn't. You right. Know, so I, life at this time, it would be, you know, it was different, but it wasn't, you, you, I, I don't want to presume, but uh, as you're saying, not as as much brutal oppression as we'd see in other places. I'm sure there was. Yeah, well, maybe of that it, as well. It, I suppose this this maybe could have been coloured by uh, the fact that it was a republic. Maybe yeah, they felt yeah. bad about it. I don't know. You well, know? the president of the republic is not behaving like King Leopold of Belgium. Yes, in the Congress. Yeah, the, the French the had this idea that they were on a civilization mission. Um, and they, you know, this was the excuse to take over countries as mm. a republic, essentially. It's a protectorate, you know. Uh, you were only in Morocco last week. I was. It was also a protectorate of the yeah, French yeah, at one stage. Yeah, they, the, the, this French republic is one that has a big opinion of itself, isn't it? Like, it's, Yeah, they, they, uh, they took over a lot, most of Africa at yeah, this time, yeah. you know. <laughs> so obviously, during this time, we'd see a lot more European influence into, into lives and culture there, right? So... How long did this last for? Yeah, so I suppose if you look at 1858 as kind of when the French um, are actually bombed Da Nang port, and if you think 1945, um, between that period, that's when, you know, you could say that a colon- it was a colonial era. After that, the, the French were still there fighting a war, but the actual colonial era is that period of time. You know, it's probably 60, 70 years, depending mm-hmm. on wh- which date you decide yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah. to start with, you know. But it was brutal in a certain extent. Like, for example, like malnutrition was a big problem because the French were exporting a ton of food at this time that would have went to feeding Vietnamese families. And... Cambodian families and people from Laos, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they taxed the they heavily taxed the Vietnamese to pay for their own subjugation, you know. So it was it was brutal. Like there was punishment, so dissent you could be beheaded for dissent, you know. And um, I found this one really weird. Um, now you have to remember that the, the emperor, the Vietnamese emperor, was officially in power you know, under yeah. this French protectorate, but he took his orders, obviously, yeah, from Paris. Yeah, yeah. So there was these weird laws, like for adultery, you would be trampled by an elephant. <laughs> I was like, right. Jesus. so weirdly specific and yeah. horrific. Yeah. yeah. So some of this stuff really jumps out at you. Um, and you know, A the, real mix of uh, European Catholicism <laughs> and its oppression <laughs> with the local style as well there. <laughs> Um, but I suppose one one of the big effects was these uh, plantations, and we see this a little bit in the film. You know, um, yeah. massive rubber plantations. The yeah. coal was mined as well, but basically all the land more or less was dispossessed. A lot of the land from the Vietnamese, 
And it was given to loyal Vietnamese who happened to a lot of the time be Catholic. Mm -hmm. So this small population. So what you're seeing is this Catholic population is more of Vietnamese of Vietnam is becoming more and more associated with the uh, wealthy, the collaborate collaborating right. with the French, okay, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, which becomes a problem later for them. Um, and let me see, where were we? <laughs> well, can I ask about uh, how does this sort of, how do you think this, uh, this era, I suppose the era is before it as well, but how does it influence the people? Like, because we, that's like, I guess the context we're trying to set here to an extent, because in the film, uh, the people of Vietnam are, I mean, we, we see them from an outsider's perspective, even in the film, right? But we're trying to understand the culture in which all of this took place all this these horrific uh events of the wars uh yeah well i suppose it, it, it mirrors a lot of colonial experiences so like they felt dispossessed i suppose um like by 1940 i think only or i think three percent of the population owned 50 percent of the land yeah so if you look at it that way you know in, in that short period of time uh but as well they were you know, the, the, it wasn't lost on the Vietnamese that they were supposed to be part of this, uh, you know, benign republic, French republic in, in, in some way, you know. So they were looking at all the ideas of republic, republicanism, liberty, egalité, fraternity, and they were wondering, like, why can't we have any of this? So there was an independence movement throughout the French colonial mm. period. There was insurgencies that the French crushed. Um, there was political parties that were founded um, to 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 try and get independence for Vietnam. You know, but I suppose it it um, it sapped them of their national pride. I suppose um, it made them feel second class citizens in their own country. You know, which is never nice. And it did. It also at this time. Being able to read, um, you know, about European ideas and all this type of thing, this was the age of nationalism. And yeah. this yeah. is where Vietnamese nationalism starts to come together. Um, and you have, I suppose, a, a national awakening of, you know, this type of thing, as you see in Ireland, it's happening as you all see over the world. All, all, yeah, all, yeah, all, sure. all over the world at this time. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that's, that's um, like, but in terms of like the repression, even to go in, like there was a colonial like prison system mm. you know um which locked up Absolutely. it was brutal like yeah. the famously a place called polo condor where the french locked up a lot of people and this was known as the revolutionaries university uh, <laughs> you know um which which so yeah they, like they had massive influence we probably don't have time to go into everything yeah, yeah. that happened you know and and that but obviously they French were, or the Vietnamese were, and the Cambodians and Lao were fairly pissed off with the French and foreigners in general by this time, you know. Understandable. Uh, and am I right in that there was also a Japanese occupation? Was that after this or? Yeah, so I suppose what we're, what we're getting up to now is like during the, coming up to the Second World War, there was this big independence right. movement. There was a lot of clamor for reform. Um, a guy who becomes very important called Ho Chi Minh in nineteen in the 1920s. He went to the Soviet Union. This guy's fascinating, by the way. Look up his biography. Like, he traveled the world, you know. He he learned so much. He was a professor. He he did so many. He, was a, he, was a, he worked as a kitchen porter at one stage. Yeah. Like, this guy saw it all. He was a professional revolutionary. And he's, he's, he's one of those, like, iconic historical figures, isn't he, like? 
Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the great, the great figures of the century. Like, yeah, he's yes. the father of Vietnam now. Like, yeah. you know, even their capital city, you know, is Ho- or, or sorry, one of their main cities is now Ho Chi Minh City. Saigon's been rename, renamed after him, you know. So, like, he's left a massive influence. But he essentially was in the 1920s. So coming up to this period uh, of the Second World War, he went to the Soviet Union um, and he trained, like he trained uh, to be an agent, you know, of the Soviet, of the, of the Comintern, the international communist organization, you know. Right. And he, as, as you do, yeah, yeah. Fam- famously had uh, friendships with with uh, vocal uh, French left wing activists. At the time yeah, he was, was a member of the French Communist Party yeah, too. Like yeah. you know what I mean? This guy. That, that's who Kissinger tried to get in contact with him through a guy he knew in France who had worked with him. I think actually might have worked with him in the kitchen. I might be wrong there, but yeah. I think he worked in a restaurant with him or something like that. But they were both like these like left-wing sort of, and that was Kitchener's, uh, Kissinger's uh, way of trying to get to Ho Chi Minh was through this guy. But it, it didn't this, work, but that was, you know. But he had a lot of connections yeah. kind of all over the world, I suppose. But um, like, I suppose he came back then and he founded the the, the, the Vietnamese Communist Party, essentially, you know. Um, and... I suppose during this period, you know, it was the kind of tail end of the French colonial empire there. There was a lot of repression, all this type of thing. And suddenly everything changed because in 1939-40, there's the invasion of France. France collapses. And suddenly, France can't defend any of its overseas territories. And just so we're clear, I mean, this probably everyone follows this very well, but just uh, the not the invasion of France, of Vietnam... France is invaded by Germany. That's what we're talking about. Exactly. So France is invaded by Germany. The Vichy government, which we've gone into in Glorious Bastards episodes. Yeah, Yeah. listen to that if you're into this. So, so So the French are not able to defend their overseas territories because the Vichy government is a puppet state and France has been conquered. Exactly. So the Japanese arrive in, essentially. The Japanese who have, you know, been taken over Manchuria in China, um, Korea, are like, we'll have a bit of Indochina. And technically <laughs> allied with Vichy France. Though. Cru- cru- crucially, they're, they're allies of Nazi Germany and therefore technically allies of, of Vichy France. Yeah, and, and they, they're they, still and like, they no, do, but that's ours. They, but they do <laughs> run it together. Like the Vichy are officially there. At the time during the Japanese occupation, which basically runs from 19, um, uh, 1940 to 1945, mm. um, they, they, the Vichy collaborate with, it's one of those unknown things from history, you know, the Vichy collaborate with the Japanese to subjugate the Vietnamese. Like, it's really That's crazy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you can imagine the, the, the more, the ideologues of, of French ethno-fascism uh, you can imagine the, how that wouldn't sit well with them. That they're, you know, they're the, but but the the reality of the world is Japan's much more powerful than you. You can't, you just can't do anything about it. Like you know, so you can imagine them just out of expediency trying to. Well, what's unusual with this is that like a lot of Asian countries at that time, they kind of considered um, they admired Japan because they were looking. Yeah, course, here's an Asian course. nation that's standing up for itself and doing all this, and they're kicking the shit out of everyone at this point. As well. Yeah, <laughs> Japanese, you yeah. must remember. So, like. uh, some people maybe would have initially welcomed the Japanese, mm. but they quickly learned that that wasn't mistake. That's a mistake. Uh, that, that was a mistake, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I suppose we're going to skip ahead a little bit here, um, but 
the Vietnamese, basically Ho Chi Minh, our old pal, was like, okay, I'm, we're all, we got to get everyone out of here. <laughs> he obviously was running the Vietnamese Communist Party, but he managed to create the Viet Minh, which um, is just a collective term for like all the independence movements, you know, mm-hmm. so it was like a unitary force. So everyone, anyone who just wanted to get rid of the Japanese or the French joined us. You didn't have to be a communist. We'll figure know? it out after. Let's yeah. get rid of these motherfuckers. Exactly. Let's get everyone out and then we'll decide what to do. Yeah. And basically they run this guerrilla campaign during this. It, it, the, the Viet Minh is formed in 1941. And over these years of Japanese occupation and French occupation, they run a very successful guerrilla war, you know. Mm. Um And when the Japanese are finally defeated in 1946, Ho Chi Minh, he declares independence. Um, Ironically, he used the American Declaration of Independence. Copy-paste. It was similar, yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is funny because he was always trying to get the Americans on board um, Mm. to, to win their support, even so far as jumping back a little bit when the... After the First World War, he turned up at the Versailles Peace Treaty in Paris, or uh, Peace Conference, and he advocated for Vietnamese um, right. independence at that time yeah. as well, you know? And like the Irish, he was thrown out and told, not for you! Yeah, all you of know? those requests worked a bit better after the Second World War, right? I mean, that's where we actually start seeing decolonization start properly. For- yeah, and, and like, you, you know, look, people would argue... There's different reasons for that. Uh, I know there, there's some perspectives on history where it's the Americans start throwing their weight around basically and telling the French and the, and the British, like, cop on. cop on, get out of those areas, like, you know, mm. and, and would style themselves as the anti-empire. Like, I, I would say, ironically, would style themselves as, as an anti-imperial sort of power at the time. But the reality of it is France yeah. and Britain are just exhausted. They have to leave. They can't run these places anymore. And this is what happened. So the, the Japanese are defeated here in 1945 anyway. And Ho Chi Minh declares, you know, Vietnamese independence. But he really only has control of the north. The British, in the meantime, had come in and taken back the south. Whilst they waited to hand it back to the French, essentially. You know, because the French had no way of actually doing like it. Like the non Vichy France. They'd exactly. come in and they like, wanted to give it back yeah. to the <laughs> Republic number? Uh, uh, Republic number four. That only lasted 10 years. Uh, we're, we're up to four republics. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it only lasts 10 years. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I suppose uh, one thing I just can't overlook uh, is like at this time, like it's a very, it's a lot, a lot, like the level of famine is incredible at these times. Like during the Japanese occupation and the turmoil, like they reckon 2 million Vietnamese starved, yeah. Yeah. you know, because obviously the, the, everything was requisitioned for these armies by the Japanese and all that, like the, 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 the export of food, all yeah. this type of thing. So the, it just, this is a simple way. The Vietnamese have been treated appallingly bad for a very long time. That's yeah. probably my conclusion. We can end the podcast. And spoiler alert for the next episode, <laughs> it's not going to slow down. Yeah, honestly, like uh, we talked before doing this episode a bit about is like, is it weird that we're doing a big deep dive into Vietnamese history, given that this is an American war film about like about the Vietnam War, which is, you know, one of the few things. But when people in the West talk about Vietnam, they think of the Vietnam War, a lot of them, you know, Um, and do we want to help kind of propagate that or can uh, we were talking about are there other are there Vietnamese films with history we can do? But I think it is all relevant because it shows this is a people that is used to conflict when we're getting into the start of 
the film and this era that we're going to talk about in the next episode, I think it is relevant to give, I don't know, because it's held in such an era of, these people are just mysterious, like they're foreigners in their own country in the film. You know, that's how they're portrayed because the Americans are there throwing their weight around. And we know that that's been happening over and over, whether it's the Chinese, the French, the Japanese. And this is the thing as well. Like, I I suppose, like this... What I, what I found interesting about this whole period was that, like, a lot of people say, why did Vietnam go, go communist? And it's not that they necessarily were all mad Marxists, um, you know, or that they were all, you know, sold that communism, although it was considered, obviously, a um, the future idea and, you know, the future utopia would be one true communism. A lot of it was just that the communists were organized. Um, they were receiving, you know, weapons and funds from the Soviet Union and China, which, uh, which you know, were with under Mao and Stalin yeah and uh a lot of it was just nationalism so like they were the most effective means of winning Vietnamese independence whether they were communist or not is another thing so mm. a lot of people fought in these wars um to expel to expel all either the Japanese the French and later the Americans um out of nationalism more than like an ideological belief in communism, mm. you know? Um, so it's, it's a funny one. That's the way I put it. You know, it's yeah. not, it's not communist capitalist. There's a good bit of nuance there, you know, between all these things. So what is the state of Vietnam at, you know, when the Geneva conference happens and all of that, where are we leaving this? Uh, yeah. So I suppose if, Basically, uh, as we said, the Japanese have been defeated. The British keep the keep the seat warm for the French while the French reoccupy. So that is still happening. So in the south, there is a separation between the south and north here, right? Exactly, which yes. is relevant. It's very, very relevant. Mm. And this is what's called the first Indochina War, and that's from 1946 to 1954. France at this time it's been embarrassed again. Uh, only at this time it's been embarrassed by the Germans oh it's actually the same in 1870 (laughs) yeah um, but yeah France wants to in the Fourth Republic uh, it wants to you know refine its glory its glory its place in the world its influence all that type of thing and it thinks it can do this by re-establishing its control over its colonies even though you know like is does any has anyone heard of irony they've just been occupied themselves for five years and then they think there's no problem going back in and reoccupying vietnam yeah. but anyway um <laughs> this this uh, basically kicks off a brutal guerrilla war between the Viet Minh um and the and the, and the french who have mm. come to come back um i'll just give you very briefly before we finish up kind of the main points of that war um in 1946 the French bombarded the city of Haiphong and like 6,000 people were killed. Mm. You know, like that's just mass discriminate now, This is after the point at which uh, Ho Chi Minh has declared like just being a proclamation yep. of independence for Vietnam at this point, right? Yes, and Ho Chi Minh has been offered um, kind of home rule within the empire. Ah, the classic imperial Yeah, move. and he's like, no, no, um, I already control all of North Vietnam. When I said independent, I mean independent. Yeah. And has England given back the South parts? And then yeah, France they were only, kinda, it was only a yeah. temporary So, so France is kind of, atta- like, yeah, controlling the South and, and trying to take over 
all of Vietnam. It's trying to take over everything, everything again, including Cambodia and yeah, Laos. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it wasn't limited to to Vietnam. You know, um, and I suppose the big thing here is that we have to be careful, or, or that needs to be said. I think is the tr- the U.S. officially the U.S. weren't in in Vietnam for until you know until the sixties. You know, um, but. They were there from the very... They were the ones supporting the French. They bankrolled this whole idea because the Truman Doctrine, you know, said that any country that wants to fight against communism Mm. should be funded. So essentially, the US bankrolled uh, the French army to carry out this this reoccupation, you know? Um, Which is basically ongoing since the the end of uh, the World War, right? Yeah. Pretty much... Yeah. Absolutely, 1946 to about 54, you know. So during yeah. this period of time, uh, thousands of colonial troops were sent. Most of them weren't French. So we say French forces. Most of them were French African from the uh, French African colonies and the Maghreb and these areas. Very it was, Only about a fifth were actually French, you know. So the French were using up their manpower from their colonies, essentially, here, you know. Um, and I suppose you had two two different factions. You had China and the Soviet Union so supporting the North Vietnamese under Ho Chi Minh, and then the French were being supported by the Americans and allies to a certain extent, you know? Um, and all this goes on for several horrible years of guerrilla warfare uh, where the French just couldn't defeat them, which yeah. we will see and we'll go into the reasons why later. Um, and it all leads up to this famous battle, Dien Bien Phu, in May 1954, where... Basically, the French were humiliated. You know, they they could they they were there was a massive defeat, and they knew the writing was on the wall. This all led to the Geneva Accords, then, um, which essentially divided Vietnam along the 17th parallel, the same as Korea. You know, mm. and the idea was in two years we'll have a, a democratic elections, and you guys can all decide to reunify, and it'll be all lovely. Um, always works always works exactly but um no secret that that never happened but after in this geneva conference 1954 basically the future of vietnam's decided into two camps north and south uh, a national a catholic nationalist leader diem was put in control of the south sort of the U, the southern regime uh, it's often called the saigon regime but like it's republic of vietnam i think officially yeah. um it was it, there was a lot of corruption. It wasn't ever very popular. And, and it, it wasn't French. It was Vietnamese. It, but was, it, it was be yes, at this stage, when it was established yeah, yeah, in 1954, yeah. officially, yeah. Um, and that was it, really. That's sort of where we end up, because it's from here then that the US starts to uh, stick its nose in even more into yeah. uh, the <laughs> affairs. But just to, I suppose, in terms of the level of, just to kind of show you the level of destruction that that war, the French war took place. Like 93,000 French forces died in that war over those whatever nine years. And about, they reckon, about 300,000 Vietnamese, north and south. Um, So, and on the back of two million from a famine in 1945. So I just feel extremely sorry for Vietnamese people. Uh, that's our take home it's for just, today's yeah, off. I mean, I mean, it's just a, it's a century of blood, isn't it? Like, yeah. With her, so. yeah. And this is all before we get into what is known as the Vietnam War, right? Yeah. Like, yeah so I hope, happened. I hope this gives a good overview of very briefly uh, Vietnamese history up until 
um, the Americans arrive. The war before the war. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. I think, uh, yeah, so next episode, we're going to start by digging into what's happening in the US. Like, what's going on in their little brains over there that's going to cause some of what we're about to see. And then obviously kind of a timeline going through some of the major events of the Vietnam War in relation to, you know, the absolute madness that we see in the film and, you know, (laughs) real events connected to it. Um, But I think, is there anything else you want to say on this or do we just power through? I think if I if I if, if we start, start talking, we'll just yeah. we will basically just be doing the next episode. We'll, so. we'll hold yeah. it in, but if you, <laughs> if you uh, let us know what you think, obviously, as always, uh, at shows what you know show at gmail Also, feel free to tweet about the show while we're away, uh, and you could do that at real underscore history to have a conversation with us. And beyond that, yeah, we'll be back in two weeks with the final episode of apocalypse uh, now the second one and also the final film episode of the season because after that we're going to do a little finale special and we got some some special things a brewing that we'll tell you about then but for now everyone that's the end of the reel cheers thanks a million. Mm-hmm.